Hello there, traveler. Glad to see you're still alive and kicking. Are you up for more stories? <laughs> I figured you would be. Follow me, my friend. Time for a small tour. You know, many of these walls are more than 500 years old. Jeremiah Vulcan, the founder of this establishment, was a labor worker at Lynn, a town that used to be not far from here. According to folklore, he was fed up by the bustle and hustle of the city, so he decided to open his own tavern at the outskirts of Lynn. But he should have paid more attention on where he was building. Why, you ask? <laughs> well, let's just say that this soil has a lot more bones under our feet than others. But that's exactly what you came for, didn't you? So come, sit closer to the fire, and let us begin. Psychologists state that there's only two forces that rule our behavior. Pleasure and pain. We love to feel pleasure, but we also crave to steer away from pain. When we're unable to do so, we try to numb ourselves with whatever we can get our hands on. Some choose chugging down bottles of whiskey. Others use needles with questionable substances. And few will try to appease their aches with material vanities. But it doesn't matter how much you try to run away from your demons. They will find you. And once they do, you'll never be able to forget them again. I witnessed something in the emergency room that has haunted me every day. I have not shared this with anyone until now. I woke up with a pounding headache and a dry mouth. Not an uncommon morning condition for my college days. I looked around the unfamiliar bedroom until I found my phone. It was 11am on Sunday. I sat on the edge of the bed and began to put my clothes on. I noticed that I was not alone. My heart started to race as I attempted to recall the previous night's drunken events. To my relief, I recognized the girl next to me as one of my friends, as she rolled over in discomfort from the sunlight. I grabbed my shoe and started to put it on. Something was wrong. White-hot pain shot up my leg as the inside of the shoe made contact with my big toe. I winced and forced a Nike sneaky over my swollen foot. I threw my jacket on and made my way up to the door. I immediately fell to the floor as soon as I put pressure on my right foot. I heard a burst of laughter from the girl behind me. <laughs> Still a little drunk, huh? I replied, no, my foot is killing me. I, I think something is wrong. What did you do to it? You were fine last night when you were running around downtown. She asked. I recalled the memory of the previous day. Oh shit, I was running? I got my big toenail removed because of the soccer injury from the intramural game. The doctor told me to take it easy. Must have not thought about it earlier after I was drinking. My foot was still numb from the anesthetic. Ouch. Well, go home and take care of it. She said. I sighed, said goodbye, and left. Being a dumb college kid, I limped the entire two miles back to the shack my college roommates and I called home. I immediately sat down and started drinking to curb the hangover. It wasn't until later that night someone decided to talk some sense into me. We had friends over, and one girl who happened to be pre-med noticed my limping. What happened to you? She asked. 
I had minor surgery on my foot and it just, it hurts. I could barely put my shoe on this morning, I replied. She got closer and looked at my leg. Oh my god, you need to go to the hospital. You see those red streaks running up your leg? That is blood poisoning. She grabbed my arm and rushed me to her car. She was nice enough to drop me off at the front door of the ER. Half drunk, I limped inside and was immediately wheeled back to a room. This began the strangest night of my life. The ER of the University Hospital was especially crowded. I was put into a room that was already occupied, with a plastic curtain separating me from the other patients. The occupants of the room caught my attention. There was an unconscious man on the other bed, stiff as a board, and drained of all color. Next to his bed was a woman, extremely thin, with a sunken face and tattered gray hair. It looked like she hadn't slept in years. She sat frozen in her chair. Standing in front of the couple was a tall male nurse, an EMT, and a police officer. The woman gazed forward with a blank stare as the cop spoke to her. Ma'am? You need to tell us what your boyfriend took. He is going to die, but we may be able to save him if you just tell us. We want to hear it in English. Can you do that? The woman didn't respond. The interrogating went on like that for a while, and the woman continued to stare forward with her unwavering gaze. Finally, my nurse came in and began to hook up an IV to me. She spoke. This should help with the infection and will help sober you up a bit. I looked at her, and she winked at me. She leaned in and whispered to me. Sorry about the patients next to us. Try and ignore them if you can. She returned to a normal volume. The hospital is pretty crazy tonight. So, the resident doctor wants me to work on getting this infection out of your foot. You're lucky this didn't reach your lymph nodes. Sepsis is no joke. I am going to have to make an incision on your toe and drain the infection out. I'll numb you with a local anesthetic first. I grimaced as she stuck the long needle into my toe. I'll be back in 15 minutes when you're numb, the nurse said as she left. I looked out into the hall as she walked out. I noticed another police officer just outside, and he was talking with a priest. It was not uncommon to see priests around campus. The university was Catholic, but I found it strange that he was right outside my hospital room. The man on the bed next to me had not moved. Maybe he was going to die and they were going to read him his last rites? My heart was racing. I had never witnessed a death before. I turned my gaze from the hall to the curtain next to me. Just behind it was the strange woman, but she was now staring directly at me with her dull gray eyes. I quickly turned away from her. I felt eyes pierce through me as an icy shiver crept down my spine. My nurse returned and started setting up her prep table. She sterilized her scalpel and my toe and began cutting. I, I couldn't look. I'm not very good with that sort of thing. Without thinking, I turned my head to the right again. The woman was still staring at me. As soon as her eyes met, I had the strangest vision. It was like I started daydreaming, but it was so vivid. I imagined myself taking the scalpel and stabbing my nurse with it over and over again. I heard the sounds of her screams and saw the horrific bloody mess. I yelled aloud, NO! I snapped out of the daydream. I was horrified with what I just imagined. I was not a violent person at all, and had never even thought about anything that graphic in my life. My stomach began to turn with nausea. Concerned with my outburst, the nurse asked me if I was okay. 
I told her I was, and she continued. I looked to my right again at the withered woman. She was still staring at me, but now she was smiling an eerily wide smile. It was like she was amused at my discomfort. I turned away and decided not to look back. The nurse finished wrapping my foot and told me she'd be back later to check on me. As she left, more medical personnel entered and wheeled away the man who was on the bed. They had draped a sheet over his body. The police officer and priest walked in and closed the door. The priest gave me a slight nod as he walked by. I noticed my cross necklace was exposed from a hospital gown. The two men walked behind the curtain. I jumped in fright as soon as I heard it. The woman started hissing and screaming as soon as she saw the priest. The police officer spoke. Cut that out or I will arrest you. The priest interjected. No need for that at the moment. Miss Bear, my name is Father DeMarco. I heard the woman spit. He spoke again, but this time it was in a different language. I hadn't been to church in a while, but some of the Latin caught my ear. I heard nomine, which I know means name. To my amazement, she responded. The words hissed out of her mouth at an incredible rate. She spoke in Latin, just as the priest had. When she stopped, the cop spoke. This is how she was talking when we found her father. What's she saying? The priest replied, I need you to leave us. Take the boy. The cop then walked over to me. Let's get you to another room, son. This woman has been through a lot tonight. I was happy to leave. I just wanted to be out of there. I got out of my bed and climbed into my wheelchair. The hair on the back of my neck stood up as the woman spoke aloud in English. Your mother misses you, David. She then let out the most terrifying laugh I have ever heard. <laughs> as the cop wheeled me out of the room, I could hear her maniacal laughter trailing off behind me. My eyes welled up with tears as I reflected on two things. First, my mother took her own life a few years ago. Second, and even more disturbing, none of the medical staff in the room had said David aloud. There comes a moment in every relationship where the flame of passion dwindles. As common as it is, for some marriages, it's a daunting experience. This couple, however, was ill-prepared for the horrors that an apparent gesture of innocent love would create. The floor was strewn with construction paper, glue sticks, and glitter. In the center was Emma, her hands on a pile of jagged, misshapen hearts. You should make a valentine for Daddy, she said. Daddy and I don't really do handmade valentines cut out of construction paper, and I had too much on my mind for stupid crafts. Jack was mad at me. Cat, I'm supposed to get a call from a very important client. Don't nag me. And where was Mr. Whiskers? If he ran away again... Why not? Emma said, her scissors cutting wildly into the paper. It's more of a kid thing, honey. Her face grew red and she smeared the glitter with newfound ferocity. I'm not a kid. I'm eight years old. Eight! 
No, no, please, don't have a tantrum. I rushed to pick up the piece of construction paper. I froze. Underneath were several small pieces of paper. I turned them over and began to read. As expected, they were notes for my husband. He constantly left notes around the house, whether it was to warn us about the broken toilet seat or to tell us he loved us. The handwriting was much sloppier than usual, but still legible. Together they said, Cat, I already got the call. I'll know if you put your phone down in the basement with mine. Tonight, I want your body. I blushed and grinned and even suppressed a giggle. He'd been complaining recently how we were always glued to our phones, how we never interacted with each other. I didn't realize he was talking about sex. And what a romantic idea. To lock away our phones and have the night all to ourselves, without any distractions. Mom, what's that? Nothing, I said, stuffing the notes into my pocket. Uh, I'm going to look for Mr. Whiskers, okay? When Jack finally climbed into bed, I curled up against him. I've been looking forward to tonight, I said in the best sultry voice I could muster. He smiled at me. Yeah? Why is that? I let my hair brush against his neck. The satin chemise touches back. I got your note. My note? The one you left me in the dining room. My fingers trailed up his leg, but he yanked it away. What are you talking about? Annoyed, I stood up, picked up my jeans, and fished for the note. This one, I said, throwing the crumpled pieces of paper onto the bed. He eyed me cautiously, then picked up the notes, and frowned. Cat, I didn't write this. Who did then? I said, my voice growing louder. A ghost? Shuffling the pieces in his hands, his eyes grew wide. His frown grew deeper. I think you read them in reverse order. So? He stepped forward. In the dim light, he was white as a sheet. Hands shaking, he laid the pieces of paper on the nightstand. I walked over, my heart pounding, and read them slowly. Tonight, I want your body. In the basement with mine. Put your phone down. I'll know if you call. I already got the cat. We need to call the police, he said, grabbing at his pocket. Wait, where's my phone? I backed away, staring at the floor. Cat, where's my phone? My heart pounded, and I heard ringing in my ears. I put our phones in the basement. No one pities criminals. It almost seems like the system is rigged, so that your sympathy only belongs to those who abide by the law. The ramblings of those imprisoned usually fall on deaf ears. It's a shame, really. You'd be surprised at the sort of tales they squander by not listening. An empty prison. A single day added onto my sentence meant the difference between a normal jail 
and the unending nightmare of Pembina Prison. I was supposed to get 364 days. That was the deal. But the judge didn't like my attitude, whatever the hell that meant. So he made it 365. Boom. One year was the minimum for prison. My lawyer made a stink and a half, but it didn't do any good. It's not his fault. In fact, he's the one who's going to release this statement to the press, or leak it online if the Guardian Corrections Group tries to get an injunction on us. People have to know what happened at Pembina Prison. I'm going to put it right out there and tell you that it was haunted. You think I'm joking, nuts, or lying, but you have no idea. Haunted prisons aren't anything like you imagine. Those places that advertise themselves and give people tours are sick jokes compared to the real thing. It got so bad you can actually look up GCG's official filings for Chapter 11. That shit put them out of business on their very first prison. And right there on the briefs, using an early statute of North Dakota law from 1857 to file an insurance claim, it says, Site of Pembina Prison confirmed by Governor's Office and two notary publics witnessing in person to be afflicted by the supernatural such that continued business is impossible. It wasn't the first time the prison was closed for that reason, either. But leeches kept buying it and reopening it, hoping to make a buck off the common man. And I was shoved into that hellhole without knowing the history even a single bit. Don't get me wrong, the building itself wasn't so bad especially for something straight out of 1853. It was a big stone cube that was squat, heavy, and cramped, but way less sealed off than modern prisons. We could see a lot of the cells around us. There was only one main hallway per floor, and we were close enough to pass things between the bars and have some real human interaction. It could have been worse. There were five floors and capacity for 500 prisoners. When I first got there, I had a bunch of cellmates, and I heard there were 2,000 guys locked up, and I believed it. That soon changed. I didn't talk to anyone for the first three weeks. I'd never been to real prison before, and I was messed up over it. I didn't want to accept that I would be in that place and stuck with three other guys and myself for an entire year. The whole prison seemed full of feral men. The bottom floor would start screaming and hollering and panicking in the middle of the night all at once. We were on the top floor, but we could hear their screams echoing through that open old layout like they were right there with us. I just thought the prisoners on the bottom floor were all nuts, until the guards weren't there to wake us up the first day of my fourth week. When I woke up in my corner, without some asshole guard banging on the bars of our cell, I finally had to talk. I asked one of my cellmates, Dante, what was going on. And I'll never forget the fear in his voice as he said something that should have made us all incredibly happy. Guards are all gone, man. The prisoners were talking quietly between the cells and loudly between the floors through various whispers and shouts. But the most we could figure out was that something on the first floor had made them all quit and protest. Sure, must have been the crazies screaming like that during the night, right? Except none of us could get any word from the bottom floor. It was dead silent down there. The guys on the second called out for hours. Someone was down there, they said. 
because they could hear shuffling footsteps walking around at random every so often. But whoever it was never said a single word. That was the first time Dante mentioned the crazy stories from the first floor. He muttered that he hoped none of it was true. When I asked about it, he just shook his head. Nothing, man. None of it ever made no sense, no way. We were a little worried as the day wore on and nobody came to let us out for breakfast. And then nobody came to let us out for lunch. The time we usually got to spend outside in the yard came and went. And people began getting restless. In the cell to our left, Dante's friend Will began telling guys to pass the word that we should all calm down and start sharing any food we had hold away. I remembered asking Dante, Is it really that bad? They've denied meals in your time for a day or two before, he told me. But the other two guys in our cell didn't look convinced. One of them said, <laughs> But not like this. They made damn sure we knew what we did. They never just up and left. Someone handed us pieces of crusty old bread through the bars. It was much appreciated. The new guards didn't show up for work for another full day. We got plenty of yard time that day from these new guys, but they seemed more confused than us. We all watched from a distance as Will asked a guard about what happened. The guard shrugged. I don't know. GCG was paying a premium for fast hires, so I signed up. What about the prisoners on the first floor? Will asked. We could still hear them shuffling around down there. We looked on the way out to the yard, but we couldn't see anyone. Huh? The guard frowned. Nobody in there. They all got transferred. Transferred? The hell does that mean? It means DOCR took them back. Returned to state custody since the company couldn't handle them. That made sense. If the floor had been full of nut jobs, the North Dakota's first local private prison company hardly had the experience to handle them. But these new guys didn't even have the skills to handle us. There were half as many guards as before, and they didn't know the routines or who the dangerous ones were among us. As a result, they were distant, scared, and forceful. All except one guy, Kellen. Kellen wasn't the first guard to treat us like human beings, but by then he was the only one around. He traded jokes while in the yard, never hit us, and looked us in the eyes when he talked. He went and found some paperwork to confirm the crazies had actually been transferred, but it took three months to get that info out of GCG. By the time he told us he'd heard back, we'd sort of forgotten the whole thing. Two nights later, maybe two hours past lights out, the guys on the second floor began screaming. Dante leapt up and fell on one of our cellmates by accident before shouting, Shit, shit, must be a fire! Other guys in our row began banging on the bars and shouting for the guards. But the uniforms charged past and headed downstairs without talking to us. We could hear them shouting orders down below, and then yelling in confusion. The prisoners' screams were clearer coming from the second, and it sounded like they were terrified of something in particular and wanted help. The sounds of gates being slammed and people running reached us after about ten minutes of shouting, and then it was silent. We sat in the dark waiting and listening until morning. When the new shift came in, they were surprised and confused, and Kellen came by to ask what had happened. We told him what we knew, but he'd shown up and found open gates and an empty second floor. 
there was no indication what had happened. But he promised to check with corporate and figure out if the absent prisoners had all been rapidly transferred again. Dante gripped the bars and made sure Kellen was looking at him. Please find out who the hell is walking around down there at night. Kellen blinked at that. I mean, I'm day shift, so I don't know what I could do. But what do you mean? The prisoners are gone. Dante told him fiercely but quietly. The guys on the third floor said they still hear someone, maybe two or three someone, shuffling their feet every hour or so till morning. I guess I could go look right now. Dante reached through the bars and grabbed his uniform, something which usually got us a beating. Hear me. Do not go in there by yourself. Stay in the stairwell unless someone's with you. Kellen nodded fearfully. It looked like he finally understood how spooked we were. He waved another guard off and Dante let go. But nothing more came of it for a whole season. The night shift had quit, and more guards got hired at an even higher pay. Kellen and another uniform scoped out the first two floors, found nothing. Dante thought it was because they were looking during the day, but he wasn't about to ask our only friend to risk himself. It was maybe three months later. Yeah, I was halfway through my sentence. And I had taken up drawing, so I had a pen and paper. When we woke up in the middle of the night to everyone on the third floor screaming in absolute panic. This time we were less scared during the event itself. Will offered a guard racing past 500 bucks from his commissary account if the man would come back and tell them what was going on. Dante listened intently, trying to hear individual screams from the third floor over everyone else's shouting and confusion. I wrote down any words he thought he heard. What I wrote down. Jesus Christ. Killing him. God. Let us out. Coming this way. We weren't as scared when it was happening because we'd lived through it twice before. But this time, the long-term fear was much deeper. Now we knew for sure that it was going to happen again, and any prisoners that had the means began lawyering up and doing everything they could to transfer to other prisons, even if it meant worse conditions. The problem was, the North Dakota prison system was already overflowing, which was the whole reason GCG got started in the first place. So every guy that got out meant it was that much harder for the rest of us. Both of our cellmates transferred, giving us more space. So that was nice, but it was small consolation. Apparently, word had started to spread on the outside, and GCG's solution, instead of paying the guards even more, was to stop having a night shift at all except for just one poor guy. Kellen was a bit miffed he hadn't gotten a raise out of the whole thing, but he was starting to believe us that something was going on. By then, he'd been around a while, and he knew we weren't bullshitters. And too many other prisoners had told him they'd heard someone walking around the first, second, and third floors at random during the night. It was just a few steps, sometimes as many as twenty. But it only happened every so often, and only once it had been long enough that you thought it had stopped for good. One guy on the fourth floor said he'd heard a full run from one end of the third floor hallway to the other, clear enough that he'd expected a guard to come charging up the stairwell, 
but nobody had appeared. He slid his wrists and got transferred out on medical leave the next day, so we took him serious. All that was enough to get Kellen to start doing some research on the outside. He came to us in the seventh month of my sentence with a pale face. Beside us at the bars, Will asked, What's the word? Kellen seemed grim. A lot of bullshit out there, but this place is mentioned a lot. It's been closed before, but I keep getting stonewalled when I ask for the historical documents. Thing is, I don't think the prison itself is the problem. Get this. He pulled out a notepad for reference. Huh. Two Canadian priests, Fathers Norbert Preventure and Severe de Malin, visited Pembina in 1818, before it was even an official township. That was back when the Hudson's Bay Company was big around these parts. That's how long ago it was. Pembina was the biggest town in North Dakota then, so the trading post was full. So the priests chose to sleep outside by where the Pembina River meets the Red River. The folktale has it that a vision of a rotting woman came in the night and stole Preventure's life. The two men bartered with her to split the remaining life between them, consigning both to only live 35 more years instead of the 70 he had originally had left. Sabir got an extra month and 20 days as a gift from his friend for his sacrifice. He paused, as if we might guess the obvious outcome. They both died 35 years later. I knew Pembina Prison had a horrible problem, but that didn't mean I had to believe everything. Let me guess. A month and 20 days apart. Kellen nodded. Dante snorted. It's true, dude, Kellen insisted. The dates of the death are right there on Wikipedia. But get this, 35 years after 1818 made their death year 1853, the year this prison was built, and the place they camped that night, by the meeting of the rivers? I didn't know what it meant, but I was beginning to feel very uneasy. It's right here, isn't it? He was dead serious. I think there's some shit here. Ancient shit. I asked a guy I know. He's got Chippewa relatives over at Turtle Mountain. They know the history of the Red River better than anyone else. He said his uncle told him to never sleep at the meeting of the Red River and the Pembina River. He said something lives there, under the ground, and awakens with the changing of the seasons. We were silent for a beat after that. It was folktale nonsense, but it was as good a theory as any. Whatever it was, it was going to come back, and it wasn't friendly. Will talked to Kellen for another few minutes, but Dante was silent. After he was gone, I asked him, What's wrong? He sat on one of the now unused bunks and told me, I got another five years in here, man. I ain't got no money for a lawyer. Shit, your sentence gonna be up before it reaches us, and I'll be here alone. Will it? There was no way to be sure. It'll be back in two months for the fourth floor, and then three months after that for us. I could get out a week before, or a day too late. It doesn't seem to be exact. He just looked at the floor. What I mean is, I do hope you get out before it comes. Oh. I wasn't sure what else to say after that, so I just sat in my corner like I always did. It wasn't too much after that that we heard GCG was going under. The mad rush of transfers had pissed off the state and lost the company a vital contract for a second location, and investors had pulled out or something. The number of guards was cut, then slashed, and Kellen took a pay hit to stay on as the only guy on the day shift. 
There's only two prisoners left on the fourth floor. He told the twenty of us remaining as the general week we expected it to happen approached. I feel like I should stay late just to see what the hell is going on down there. But the former guards I ask about it are all terrified as hell and refuse to talk. Some got violent just because I asked. It's cool, Will told him. You got a kid at home. Don't be here for it. The twenty of us left on the fifth floor sat in our cells once night fell, praying and listening. On Monday night, nothing happened. The two guys down below occasionally shouted up to us that everything was clear. On Tuesday night, nothing happened. The strain was growing, though. We could sometimes hear them breathing rapidly down there. I could only imagine the adrenaline rushing through them every minute until dawn. On Wednesday night, nothing happened. Yet, something had changed in the air. The prison was much quieter now that 2,000 men had become 22. And I thought I could feel a subtle sort of heartbeat in the air, pounding against reality like it was a thin sheet of paper. It's just your imagination, man. Dante whispered. None of us were willing to speak louder than that. On Thursday night, that heartbeat became a feeling of footsteps approaching from a great distance. Guys! Will shouted from his cell. You good down there? Still here, one responded from down below. But I can feel it. It's at the door. It's knocking. What the hell's that supposed to mean? The man below did not respond. Friday night. That was the night it would happen. All day, the two guys on 4th pulled and clanged on their bars, begging to be let out. Kellen was torn. After two hours of listening to that pleading, he came up with an idea, and transferred both of them up to our floor. If nobody's on 4, he said happily, then we'll all be safe, right? Out loud, we agreed, but we were kidding ourselves. When the night guard showed up, he freaked and took the two men back down. He said out loud what we were all thinking. If nobody's on four, then it'll just come right to five and get us. What the hell was Kellen thinking? We had to listen to hours of sobbing that evening. It was the hardest trial of my life. I wanted to call out to the night guard. I wanted to ask him to get those men out of there. But if I did, I knew whatever was coming would find all of us instead. The moment it happened was like a cold hand on my shoulder. What's going on down there? Dante shouted. The man who was not sobbing called back. It's... it's changing! Will demanded. What's happening? Tell us! It's red! Red? It's red! What's red? Will yelled insistently. God damn it! What's red? We stared down the hallway at the night guard, who stood listening with fear. The screaming began a few seconds later. This time, only one floor above, we could clearly hear their every word. The sobbing prisoner shrieked. The man who'd been communicating with us began incoherently raging with fear against his bars. Then, strangely, 
he stopped. The twenty of us clung to our bars, unable to help, unable to flee. Many of us cried, but we were otherwise silent. For to yell would be to drown out the last words of the men below. But they were eerily quiet for nearly two hours. We waited in strained silence as random footsteps traversed the fourth floor every so often. What was happening? For the first time, the victims of whatever was going on down below had chosen to be quiet instead of yelling for help. Why would that make things different? At long last, the sobbing man broke the silence. Oh my god, it's coming your way! Shut up! It'll see you! Distract it! Hit your bars! The sound of clanging echoed up the stairwell. The sobbing man said with terror, It knows! It knows! Jesus Christ, do something! We were no longer silent. We echoed that sentiment, loudly and repeatedly to the guard. Do something! He just stood there, literally quaking in his boots. Will screamed at him. Snap out of it! The other guards or prisoners got away, you can too! Whatever it is, it won't follow you if you let them out and leave! I shouted. They're gonna die down there! Dante threw his shoe, and the impact finally snapped the man out of his terror. The guard ran to the stairwell and descended. The first thing we heard him say was a taken aback. Mary, mother of Christ the sobbing man again. Over here! For God's sake, let us out! The other prisoner wasn't talking for some reason. We could hear his gasping terror, but that, too, went quiet. Then we heard a buzzer, and all the gates on four slammed loudly open. The sounds of panting, running, and someone dragging something followed. The prison went silent. And just like that, we were alone again. The formerly crowded prison now felt terrifyingly large and empty, with only twenty of us and no guards. That night, the unmistakable sound of footsteps echoed from down below. I counted time as best I could. Forty minutes, and someone took three steps out of a cell and into the hallway. An hour and six minutes, Someone ran ten steps along the hallway and stopped abruptly. Twenty-eight minutes. The footsteps approached the stairwell, but then turned into a cell and went silent. Thing was, whoever it was sounded barefoot, and the starting and stopping locations did not match. Where they ended was often nowhere near where they began again later. By the time dawn came, we were scared in emotionless, terrified silence. And it took Kellen's arrival for us to begin stirring again. With GCG in bankruptcy court, we no longer had a night guard at all. If it came for us, there would be nobody to let us out of our cells like everyone else. We hardly talked. We hardly ate. Each passing day was a grain of sand falling through an hourglass marking our executions. 
our fellows began confessing to crimes they hadn't even committed, just to get transferred to Supermax out of state, the only option left. Well, that and suicide attempts. One by one, Kellen escorted or dragged guys out of our floor. Twenty became fifteen. Then ten. Then it was just me and Dante, with Will still in the cell to our left. The three of us and Kellen. Four men waiting for doom. We sat playing card games in the weeks leading up to it. It would be one full year for me in that place. But I could swear I'd spent a lifetime in that cell. I couldn't think. Couldn't remember life before. Couldn't imagine surviving after. Every day I prayed for a transfer to come in. But North Dakota had gotten sick of our shit. And the judges had stopped hearing cases from Pembina Prison. They didn't know there were only three of us left. Nobody knew. We contacted the media. We phoned the governor's office. We made a ruckus. That was worse than nobody knowing. It turned out... Nobody cared. Also, there was nobody higher up at GCG following the situation. And Kellen couldn't get anybody on the phone. Payroll meaning just his paycheck, was being handled by a third-party disbursement company that couldn't answer questions about ongoing proceedings. The week approached. On Monday night, nothing happened. We were like statues in our cells, alone, waiting for a sign of the executioner's approach. When dawn came, we sighed and began moving again. Dante asked, You get out Friday? I nodded. If things went like before, I would be released the day of. As long as I left before sundown, I would be alright. On Tuesday night, nothing happened. Two for two. Just one more. Just one more day. I sat through that darkness until... No. The feeling of the prison had changed around us. A subtle heartbeat seemed to pulse against our faces and ears and eyes. It had come a day earlier in the week than the last time. That morning, Will patted my arm as we both leaned out the bars. <sighs> Sorry, man. Dante just shook his head angrily. I wasn't going to get out in time. On Wednesday night, the heartbeat became the sound of footsteps approaching from some unfathomable distance. I think I stood at the bars of our cell that entire day. Fingers wrapped around metal with force to match the tension in the air and in our minds. This couldn't happen. This wouldn't happen. My lawyer would walk in and tell me he'd gotten the judge's unfair addition of an extra day removed. One day. One goddamn day. Even if I'd spent the whole year in this prison, one day still meant life or death. Let me out. Let me the hell out, for God's sake. But nobody cared. And nobody would listen. I'd like to tell you that Kellen stayed late that night. I'd like to tell you that when the entire floor began to glow red, 
the hallway, the cells. The stone itself as whatever ungodly abomination in the earth began to wake upon the changing of the seasons. As distant footsteps became a traveler at the door of our minds, I'd like to tell you that Kellen was there and hit the button and opened the gates and let us all out. I'd like to tell you that I didn't see anything, that I'm not permanently a broken man. I didn't claw at the walls of my cell as it approached slowly, moving a few steps every 20 to 70 minutes. I'd like to tell you that all three of us were able to run away and escape the horror upon reality with its rotting hands and blind eyes radiating crimson light as it searched for us at random. But I can't give you a satisfying end to this story. The disbursement company fired Kellen and changed the locks on the property. According to their paperwork, all the prisoners had been moved, and they thought he'd been getting paid for guarding an empty prison. They left us in there for 11 days before the error was found, which meant 11 nights with that thing. For 11 days, we starved. For 11 nights, we sat absolutely still, not daring to move or breathe or even look left or right. It knew where we were, generally. It stood right outside our cells for hours. It sometimes walked right through the bars and grasped at the beds around us, daring us to make even the slightest motion. When you've spent six hours staring into the blind, crimson eyes of a rotting demon. Unable to blink your eyes for fear that it will hear the air your lashes move. When you've seen what it's seen, the worlds it has walked reflected in hellish red, you'll understand. No one cares. I'd like to tell you that Kellen actually existed. I'd like to tell you we had a friend among the guards, and that it wasn't all bad. I'd like to tell you I wasn't traumatized by the hell I went through, being left to rot and left to die as nothing more than a number on some corporation's books. But no one cares. I still question what really happened to Jeremiah Vulcan. Something about his story just doesn't add up. I can't complain, though. Thanks to him, I have a job. He might have been running away from his family. Maybe he'd been rejected by the girl he fancied. Or perhaps he was trying to escape from his sins. That'd make an interesting story, don't you think? <laughs> hmm. So what are you running from? Nothing? <laughs> Why walk all the way here in the middle of the night, then? Please, I appreciate the company. But you don't need to worry about me. This place gets a lot of visitors. True, some are no longer the kind who eat or drink. 
but those are the ones that share the best stories. Stick around long enough, and you'll be able to meet them. Hey, what's with the sudden rush? They are harmless. Well, most of them, that is. Are you sure you don't want to meet them? <sighs> you really make a lot of hassle about it. You should stay a night or two so that you can see there's nothing to be afraid of. Oh, that? Well, that's probably just a nightmare. Everyone has nightmares from time to time. It helps build character. Or so they say. Come, let me walk you out. Most of the rooms here were actually built by Jeremiah Vulcan himself. The inn, however, has changed hands from time to time since then. With every new owner, a new idea came, usually in the form of a room or two. Remind me to show you a few of them on your next visit. I think you'll find it interesting, to say the least. Oh, and make sure you stop by again. I will be waiting. Goodbye, my friend. Till we meet again. On this life, or the next. And now it's announcement time. Before you leave, I'd like to take a moment and thank the people who provided their voices to read these horror tales, along with everyone else who'd been involved in bringing these horrific tales to life, here at the Cursed Inn. If you are a writer and you think your story is sinister enough to be featured on our podcast, or if you'd like to volunteer as a voice actor, send us a demo at thecursedin at gmail.com. We're always looking for new stories and talents to scare our guests. And please, don't forget to check out our page on Facebook and Twitter for updates. We'll see you very, very soon.